2: From WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Writes. Thank you for listening. The exhibition on view at Atlanta's Museum of Contemporary Art, MoCA GA, is celebrating local artists of Hispanic Latinx origins. Later this hour, the artist and juror Alexi Torres will explain how the works in this show reveal the duality of these artists' identities. First, Serenby is a neighborhood on the edge of Atlanta in South Fulton County. The residential community offers a connection between arts and the environment. Jennifer Bauer Lyons is the executive director of the B Institute for Art, Culture and the Environment. She's with us now via Zoom. Jennifer, welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much, Lois. We are um, really excited to be here with you today.
2: Well, what can you tell us about the B Institute for Art, Culture and the Environment?
3: We are a nonprofit organization that serves um, the Southern part of Fulton County. And we focus on our three pillars, which are art, culture, and the environment. We're an organization that is unique in the sense that we have what we call programming divisions. So Terminus Modern Ballet Theater and Air Serenby, which is our artist in residence program, are two of our programming divisions that operate under the umbrella of the Serenby Institute. And then we also, at the Institute, manage several different programs, one being our ACE program, which is our outreach program specifically for the residents of South Fulton County. And that program brings free arts, culture, and environmental programming to schools, nonprofits. Um, We partner with the city of South Fulton, we partner with Union City, with Fairburn, um, and it just kind of runs the gamut of all the different partners that we have, but we bring free programming um, to them. And then we also have a public art program and we have an environmental program. And then we have some programming that we just do in and around um, Serenby for anyone who wants to come in and enjoy it. So we are located at what is affectionately called the Art Farm, um, which, is a, um, which is a campus that is right across the street from the Serenby community. Um, And that is where our artists in residence program operates out of two rural studio cottages and where our offices are located.
2: Shortly after the pandemic hit the nation last March, now a year ago, CERNB canceled the rest of its season through the end of 2020. How has CERNB pivoted to the virtual world?
3: So we were really fortunate that we received a large grant from the NEA to continue some of our program virtually. And so we launched a concert series last August that was housed out of the Southwest Arts Center in partnership with the city of South Fulton. And so we brought those concerts to everyone live streamed um, from inside the beautiful Southwest Art Center. And then we've also had a variety of other programs that we were able to do virtually, everything from storytellers to environmental lectures, we were able to do that. Terminus Modern Ballet Theater also completely did a pivot and they filmed for the first time a brand new piece called um, Marley Was Dead to Begin With, which was an inspiration from Dickens A Christmas Carol. And so that was filmed in early December and released in mid-December and people had access to it for an entire an entire month. And then fortunately because our artist in residence program is housed in these remote cottages, we were able to continue to bring those artists to the Serenby Institute. So we were able to fulfill those those artists um, contracts and, and make sure that they were able to to keep moving forward on what it was that they were focused on um, for the rest of the year. So we did pivot with some of the some of our programming going virtual, but we were also able to continue that in-person in person Artists and residence program.
2: Last June, the Serenbe Institute decided to lay off the entire staff of the Serenbe Playhouse amid charges of racism. What were the issues that arose, Jennifer?
3: So last summer, it came to light that there were several issues of unfair work practices, unsafe work practices, gender discrimination and racial discrimination under the leadership of the previous artistic director, Brian Cloudus. And the Serenby Institute board made the really tough decision of needing to really reset with the Serenby Playhouse. So they hit the pause button and the reset button and because of that and also due to everything that was happening in the world with the pandemic it was necessary to lay off that entire team and so since then the serenity institute board and the entire staff including all of our division staff have been working towards creating a more equitable and inclusive organization and that really stemmed from starting to to really take a look at what was happening with our theater division, The Playhouse. Um, but it has really spread across all of our divisions. We've taken a hard look at everything and we'll have some exciting news in the next month or so about a new theater company that we will be launching as part of the Serenbe Institute.
2: Are there new policies and practices in place to rebuild the staff and Serenbe's environment?
3: Yes, so we've been working with Dr. Tiffany Russell, who is a DE&I um, professional and consultant. We actually met her at the Atlanta theater dinners that were hosted by Out of Hand Theater last February. And so we started a conversation with her About just taking a look at how we were, you know, how we were doing, doing a landscape of what our current practices were. And so we started those conversations with her almost over a year ago. And so we had already started to take a look at okay, what is it that we need to be doing? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well when all of this came to light about what was happening with the playhouse? And so she has been on this journey with us for the last year to really help us create a more diverse and equitable um, organization. One of the things that we did is that we pulled together an artistic um, values task force made up of a lot of different members of the Atlanta theater community, artists, actors, funders, patrons, other board members. And um, we pulled them together and we met with them over the course of five different um, sessions And what came out of that was a new artistic value statement which talks a lot about just how we should be treating people and how we should be creating an environment um, that is accessible um, to everyone. And what started out as being a statement that would just be for the new theater company quickly became something that the entire organization adopted. And so the board of directors adopted it, the entire staff has adopted it. And that is the basis as we build this new theater company. One of the things that's really important to me as we build this new um, theater company is really decentering this notion of having an artistic and managing leader that make all the decisions. And so one of the things that I'm very focused on is making sure that this is a community inspired and community designed and led organization. And what I mean by that is making sure that we have a artistic committee that is going to help decide what that programming is and help evaluate that programming. So it won't just be on the shoulders of the artistic director and the managing director to make all those decisions. And so that is probably the biggest shift in terms of policies and practices as we move forward with this new theater company.
2: Sounds like you have been working hard at this. Jennifer, is there a timeline for Serenby restoring its staff and creating the new playhouse or theater?
3: Yes, we are hoping that um, next month we will be able to, announce the new name and the mission statement and our advisory board that we'll be working with um, to help form the new theater company. And then sometime over the summer, early fall, we'll be um, hiring that staff. And we hope to really kind of launch at the beginning of 2022. But we'll have some more announcements next month.
2: Ah, now I see that CnB will host a live in-person, socially distanced outdoor concert very soon on March 12th, who will perform?
3: We are so excited to have um, the rock duo, Kate and Corey um, performing for us on March 12th. And then we have a whole lineup getting us through the spring into the summer and through the fall of different um, musicians that will be coming to perform and out in an outdoor concert series. So, but first up is Kate and Corey and we are really excited to have them.
2: And I see a nature walk with Mark Warren is on your schedule. He has wonderful writings and and just an amazing outlook on the environment.
3: Yes, we're so excited that he'll be coming back to Cerenby to provide some um, in-person nature walks in small groups socially distance as well. So we're excited to have him come back to Saranby On the 13th, we have Doug Tallamy coming to talk about native species. One of the things that we are planning at, on our art farm campus is a native species garden. Um, and so one of the things that's important to um, Saranby and the Chad Hills area is to make sure that we have as many native species plants as we possibly can for the environment. And so Doug is gonna kick off that conversation for us on March 13th via a Zoom presentation.
2: And the ACE program that you mentioned earlier, um, which engages in outreach with schools and the neighboring community, will that continue?
3: Yeah. So what's really unique about the ACE program is that we meet with each partner individually and we ask them what they need and then we try to go and find it for them. And so each school that we work with each nonprofit that we work with each city entity that we work with all has different needs. And so we've been um, working with them throughout the pandemic to try to meet what their needs are. A lot of them have had to hit the pause button and focus on other priorities. So we're just restarting up some of those conversations. 2020 was a pretty thin year for us when it came to the ACE program because our partner um, organizations and schools were focused on on other priorities. But we just completed an art supply drive and were able to deliver art supplies to a few of the different elementary and middle schools in the area. Um, So we were excited about that. The kids were super excited to get some new supplies and um, we'll continue to partner with them on the programming, whatever their programming needs are.
2: Jennifer Bauer Lyons is the executive director of the Serenby Institute for Art, Culture, and the Environment. More information about their upcoming events will be on our website, wabe.org slash life. The Museum of Contemporary Art in Atlanta, MOCA GA, is celebrating local artists of Hispanic Latinx origin with a series of works on view through March 20th. Atlanta-based artist Alexi Torres worked with the museum director as juror for this show. He joins us now via Zoom. Alexi Torres, welcome to City Lights.
4: Thank you so much, Luis, for having me.
2: With the pandemic, last year, much of MoCAGA's programming went online. This exhibition has been installed in the museum's gallery. Why was it important to reclaim that space for these artists and their work?
4: Well, I think there is a strong presence of contemporary Latin artists in Georgia and in Atlanta. So somehow it was a wonderful opportunity and kind of necessary for then us, in this case, to have a show there and put a voice in the Museum of Contemporary Art, which is a very great institution for contemporary art. Of the best one we have here, for artists that can reach and show.
2: Is the show accessible to those who aren't able to visit the museum in person, either because of distance or health reasons?
4: Well, I think the final, they divided the show in four parts in a, in a smaller room. Mm-hmm. I think it's over by now, and, and there was an exhibition through the pandemic. Yeah, with all the limitations, but they went ahead and and did a show no matter what. With was really, really good.
2: This exhibition features works of 37 Georgia artists selected from a group of 160 who submitted to the call. What determined which artists or works made the cut?
4: Well, being a jury is a difficult thing because you can only judge from your own point of view of what you understand and what you know. And I base my judgment on, uh, in a way, of the uh, almost 20 years I've been living here and what I have learned from my point of view as a Latin artist. So mostly with that, how I would think and how I would create and how we see that in other artists and how revolutionary their work were. And and so that mostly was what um, guide me through to make a decision with Annette, you know, the museum director also created the work with me and jury with me.
2: Alexei, how does the art that is showcased speak to the duality of these artists' identities?
4: It's something that you can't get away from. It, which is your early years. Somehow, I always show in your work. Definitely, clearly, you can see that there is some Latin background or immigration works related to immigration, to some others, to discrimination or whatever they have the mind focus on. But you can tell that all of them have a kind of similar focus to how to go to the work because the life they had and that's what in a way make us uh, Latin artists.
2: Yes. It's not easy to say Hispanic or Latin Latinx. People come from many different countries, classes, backgrounds It's a broad category, but I think what you addressed about how one's earlier life informs the present work is what it's all about. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of the pieces in this show, beginning with Taping Nature Slash Colonies by the artist Paula Rinaldi. Rinaldi made this masking tape. What can you tell us about the artist and this particular
3: piece?
4: Nobody can speak as good as the same artist. I'm very familiar with her work. She is an Argentinian artist. I'm familiar with her work because she's been shown in the museum previously. She is a really good artist. Somehow, what I feel too with my work is the interconnectedness of things and how to uh, get pieces together to create one work and stick them together. And that works a lot really well with identity and and thoughts and things that we get in our mind to build what our life is. It's a collective of little things. It's very experimental because it's all tape and and it's so well-crafted. So I I do love her work and and, and I was familiar with it as well. So it was easy to include her in, in the show as well.
2: Family portrait is a set of drawings by Yemi Cambron Alvarez. She has painted murals all around Atlanta depicting social justice issues from the point of view of immigration narratives. Why did you select Family Portrait for this show?
4: I think at the time, I wanted to focus on the part of the family issue and the separation and the connection with the one left behind. Uh, a lot of immigrants doesn't really use their art to criticize the system here in the U.S. or give their voice through social uh, ideas, but something that kind of join us together is mostly the separation with the family or the land left behind and the start of a new life. So I guess that's why I decided um, her faces, her portraits.
2: <laughs> Love, ATL, Pont City Market, is a tribute to one of Atlanta's most recognizable landmarks. The artist is Ana Guzman. Would you tell us about her background and why this painting was chosen?
4: Well, Ana Guzman, she is Cuban as well as me. It's what I was telling you before of the separation from your homeland. We are from the same country, but different time that we immigrate to U.S. So we kind of, that's why we have a different vision of what we left behind. When she left Cuba, she was very young. So it still was a very beautiful uh, land, um, buildings and magnificent city who completely got destroyed with the socialism system over there by the time I left. So my work with Cuba, it's more on the topic of criticizing the system there, that her work is a beautiful memory of what she left behind. And, and she painted the buildings, the cars, just this beautiful story of 1950s and 1960s in Probably early 70s in Cuba. So in in her case, I wanted to include as well some uh, Cuban artists. which There are a few other ones that I picked there. Willi Mendes and Mirta Vega. But uh, yeah, that's why uh, I really like her work. And she's very serious with her work. And I love that. So I, I thought that I could be there.
2: And the Ponce City Market, love ATL. It's very upbeat happy feeling it's, you know sort of a celebration of this city
4: yeah yeah and it's it's the same it's like a connection to what is here now to the city that she never had in Cuba I guess that's how I saw it ah. and then she she paints cityscapes of Atlanta yeah
2: I, I yeah. had her on the show a few years ago I think she would ride the Marta trains and sketch drawings of people and then give them to the people riding. Were you aware of that?
4: No, I was not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So something else I want to say. I think it was good that Jury was another Latin artist because I could, in a way, understand a little bit what's making us create art because our background. And, and I was really honored to be the one. As I say, I have my Cuban reference and I left Cuba when I was 27 years old. So I, I really knew the country and the culture and everything there. I know Costa Rica a lot, but I don't know much about Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, but I guess that in a way, we are marked with the same feeling of leaving a lamb behind and starting a new life. And I focus on that.
2: The pandemic has physically forced us apart and must be felt even more acutely by those separated from their roots or their families in other countries. How does this exhibition bring the Latinx and Hispanic communities closer to one another, even when they cannot physically gather together?
4: Well, for a few reasons. One of them is that we all got probably introduced to a lot of other Latin artists that we didn't even know and I'm sure that some connections were made after that. Having the opportunity to um, show your work through a time there was not a show open or anything going on, it, it was a good breath of air for every artist who was able to have uh, such an institution to show their work. It, it was really good. I know that the show couldn't happen as a solo whole show as it was planned, but at least it was something that um, kept people happy. Uh, I follow a lot of those artists and, and their Instagram post, And there was uh, a sense of joy that, oh, at least something's going on with my, my, my work, which uh, at the end of the day, it was all good. And it will happen again. I'm sure it will happen again. And there are Latinx artists in Atlanta. Um, it's a very strong community. It's still small, but it's a very strong community. And eventually it will be more shows. Yes.
2: Alexi Torres, this has been very interesting. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. The Atlanta-based artist and juror, Alexi Torres. The series of works by Atlanta's artists of Hispanic and Latinx origin is on view at MoCA GA through March 20th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org/slash. City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Finding humor in the most dire situations can help us gain perspective and provide a welcome distraction. Comedian Paula Poundstone is an expert. She's still putting out new episodes of her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. I spoke with Paula from NPR West last year, right before the pandemic hit the U.S. Here, she explains the backstory to her podcast.
1: My original idea for this podcast was something called how to move out of your parents' house. And I meant that metaphorically as well as literally. And we never used that name, but that's still the sort of driving force behind who I have on, which is what do I need to know to function as an adult? (laughs) And I don't need to know how all the plumbing works, although it might be nice. But I do need to know not to put Kleenex down there.
2: There you go. You're a life coach.
1: Yeah, it is a little life coachy. Um, not quite as hand-holding. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, the main function of the podcast is to be funny, and I like to think we pull that off. It's me and my partner, Adam Felber. Oh, yes. And uh, we make with the jokes, and it's fun. I mean, that's I want people to go away feeling like, you know, they got a laugh and a little bit of information, and and, and then the deal is sealed.
2: You and Adam are a winning combination. Thank you. Did you meet on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or did you know each other before? No, we
1: met on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And Adam was in New York when we first started working. You know, when I first came to that show, he was still living in New York. And then he moved out to... Los Angeles. And, you know, on Way, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in the beginning, and I've been there for 18 years, I think, when I first came on board, we didn't work in front of a, a live audience. Mm-hmm. Um, we all were in a studio, uh, where closest to wherever we lived. So Peter Sagal, the host, was in Chicago. Carl Castle, who was the announcer and scorekeeper at the time, was in Washington. Adam was in New York. I was in LA, et cetera. So when Adam came out to L.A., we happened to be on the same show at one time. So we were both in an L.A. studio together, which is how we we met. And we became friends. Uh, My kids and I used to go over and visit him and his wife. And then one day, you know, we still knew each other mostly, uh, you know, mostly through work. But we had this also social relationship. And I asked him one day if he would take my son to his hockey lesson for me because i i had to be on the road and and my nanny didn't have enough hands
2: that's a uh, major step in a friendship
1: that is a major step i know people talk about helping you move you know the person who has the truck who gets asked to help move or or pick you up at the airport none of these hold a candle to <laughs> will you take my son <laughs> and, and and if only you knew my son you know <laughs> how challenging what i was asking him was it was uh, it, i would say that categorically, it's right near, will you donate a kidney
2: to me?
1: <laughs> and uh, anyways, he did it, and that sealed the deal it, right there.
2: It did. It, how did you first become involved in Wait, Wait?
1: In the most boring of ways, they called me up and asked me. And I had never heard of the show, which I'm sure they hate it when I say, but the truth is it's grown a lot over the years. So they sent, this tells you how long ago it was, they sent me an audio cassette tape.
3: Oh. And it was on the
1: island in my kitchen for the longest time, because I knew that's what was going to happen with that silly island thing in the kitchen. Stuff just piled up there. And uh, one day I had a nanny, we were standing in the kitchen and he said, what is this? Uh, and I said, oh, it's a thing from, wait, wait, don't tell me. And he said, oh, I love that show.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and so it was really based on my nanny's advice. He said, you should do that. And so that's. Why I went ahead and and did it, and it was as I said, it was different back then than it, than it came to be shortly after I joined the group. You know, once they started in front of a live audience, the audience is is like a like another performer that you're listening to over the radio. Their
2: synergy,
1: yeah, it really added it really added a big element to it, and they, we have the greatest audiences too. It's as if it's as if they're hand-picked
2: public radio listeners.
1: Public radio listeners are great. What
2: more could you ask for?
1: I know that if one makes a mistake in terms of grammar, that they can get a little testy. But other than that, they're great. The
2: the grammar police are always out there in public radio, but they keep us on our toes. Speaking of grammar, in your podcast, you have a word of the week, and you do it through song.
1: Well, I tell the word of the week and then I add it to my vocabulary song. My original plan was that I would have this vocabulary song that contained every word, you know, and so it would just get a longer and longer song. And then I don't know how many words in I was before I realized that will be really difficult to listen to.
2: (laughs) Um, War and peace in this song.
1: Well, exactly. So eventually I started, uh, you know, I do about f- maybe five words and, and then they drop off. But we actually, speaking of uh, of listener contributions, we have a listener who sent us a vocabulary song where she literally used in the song, and by the way, a lot more harmoniously and, and beautifully than I, my song is not, as Adam always says, is not really replicable. It It's a little uh, dissonant. But we had a woman who sent in a vocabulary song using every word that we've had as a vocabulary word, and it was fabulous. You see,
2: there is nothing like a public radio listener.
1: It's true. Uh, I mean, this woman could do this for a living, and here she is, you know, sending it to, you know, Goofy,
2: Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Comedian Paula Poundstone. (laughs) New episodes of her podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, appear each Tuesday on Apple Podcast, and she's a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Saturdays at 10 a.m. here on WABE. Up next, a compelling film for Women's History Month. Like many things originally thought beneficial, radium proved deadly. In the 1920s, hundreds of young women working in factories were exposed to so much radium that their sites still set off Geiger counters. This story is at the heart of the film Radium Girls. Lydia Dean Pilcher is a producer and director of the film. She joins us now via Zoom. Lydia, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here today.
2: What inspired you to tell this story?
0: I've been an environmental activist for, I would say, ever since I became a mother 25 years ago. And I had been looking for a while to find a story that would blend my passion for the environment with my storytelling career. And I had put the word out, was trying to find the right script. I I like to tell narrative feature stories. And I had heard about a script that Ginny Moeller and Brittany Shaw had written, which is this script. And I reached out, got the script. And when I read it, I was totally captivated because I loved, the idea that the story of this com- coming of age into this kind of rude awakening of real world, you know, power, politics, corporate scandal um, happened with these teenage girls. And, you know, that it was one girl that want- had dreams of going to Hollywood. Another girl wanted to go on archaeological digs in Egypt, but they were painting glow-in-the-dark watch dials in orange New Jersey in the 1920s, and everything starts to unravel when Joe's tooth falls out, and Bessie realizes that something's going on, something's wrong.
2: The lead characters in the film, Bessie and Joe our sisters, as you said, who work at the American Radium Factory. Was that a real company?
0: The real company was U.S. Radium, and we, we changed the name slightly. But it was it was a real company. The whole story is a true story. And the, ca- the court case that the girls ultimately mounted against the company is a notorious case that is still used today in arguing um, cases of toxic chemical litigation.
2: Mm. What did the factory produce that led to the women's exposure to radium?
0: Well, the American radium company or U.S. radium company was making glow-in-the-dark watch dials. And it had originally started as a phenomena for uh, soldiers and foxholes in World War I. And there were, there were a number of different luminous watch style painting factories around the country. There was one in Connecticut, one in Ottawa, Illinois. There was even one outside Athens, Georgia. And these companies were basically hiring young women, often immigrant women, to lip-point the radioactive paint onto the watch dials. It was a very um, delicate, sort of precision-driven process. And women had been China painting for years. So it was a similar process, except this time the paint was poison.
2: So they dipped their thin brushes into the radium and then into their mouths to make the bristle was that much finer. I mean, it is so chilling to watch that in the film. I thought it noteworthy that the company's doctor would diagnose all of the women suffering from radium poisoning with syphilis. Why did they choose that disease?
0: Well, I think we could imagine that, as uh, Catherine Wiley says in the film, that syphilis is a diagnosis that not many women would want to talk about. And that is actually how the radium poisoning was proven. You know, In real life, there were two sisters who had a third older sister who had died of reportedly syphilis. And when the girls came to meet Catherine Wiley who was head of the National Consumers League in New Jersey, she suggested that the only way to really prove the ra- that radium poisoning was happening was to exhume a body. And the, the girls were very disturbed by this idea. And in fact, just, you know, one got up and left the meeting, the other one's listening intently. But when they get home that night, they talk about it and they decide that it's something that they have to do. And indeed, it did prove that there was no syphilis. She died of radium
2: poisoning. But in fact, the doctor's diagnosis is more sinister because it's yet another way of not only silencing women, but a false accusation that certainly in that era would have carried with it a lot of shame.
0: Yeah, I think it, 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 is, it does feel like a, a predecessor to slut shaming in, in many ways. But I, I think also these women were considered to be dispensable. Because the the real corporate scandal is that the radium company had hired researchers from Harvard University, Department of Public Health, who came and did, did their testing and their research, and they had found and proven that there was radium poisoning that was happening and that that was the cause of the girls getting sick. But they had signed these, you know, non-disclosure agreements, and they weren't allowed to speak about the research, and the company, altered the documents with the New Jersey Health Department. And so the information was buried. And I think that is really the scandal of the story, that there was wrongdoing happening and and it was with full knowledge.
2: Mm. You mentioned that this is based on a true story. Were Bessie and Joe based on two women in particular?
0: Yes, there are... um, some diaries that have been left behind by the radium girls, and one in particular that was written by Catherine Schaub, gave us a lot of insight into her personality. And you could see that she was a dreamer. She had this very sparkly personality, a vivid imagination. And she was the inspiration for the Bessie character played by Joey King. And there are many other radium girls who are involved in the story. So the, I think the inspiration really came from Catherine Schaub for Bessie. And then the Maggia sisters were the two sisters that had the older sister who had um, predeceased. Then there's many other characters. Catherine Wiley is, is a historic character who's an important part of the story. The Consumers League. Alice Hamilton was she was a pioneer in industrial toxicology. Arthur Roeder is a real character, um, Dr. Flynn, Dr. Marlin. The whole story essentially is based on true events that happened in Orange, New Jersey. Mm.
2: In the film, you intersperse some archival footage of the era with the narrative scenes. Would you talk about that artistic decision?
0: Yes, the writers of the the film, Ginny Moeller, who's also co-directed with me, and the other writer, Brittany Shaw, were working as archival footage researchers when they graduated from NYU Film School. And they had been working on a documentary for the History Channel. And Ginny was working on one about the Manhattan Project. Brittany was working on one for the Civil Rights Project. they had been very immersed you know in this time period and Ginny was the one who sort of stumbled on the story of the radium girls and sort of as she tells it wheeled her chair over to Brittany and said you've got to see this story but what happened was that when we you know got ready to sort of make the movie and we were thinking about all the different elements to kind of set the stage the time period that the radium girls existed in a lot of the material that they were very familiar with from their archival research came forward and it felt because we were an independent film like a really amazing idea to come up with a way to integrate the footage into the movie to give more context of the period and the time in a very authentic way so we created the character of Edda, who, as you know, came from Tulsa to the East Coast after the Tulsa race riots. And she, her, we set it up that her family owned a photography studio and she's a camera woman. And we used her perspective and her camera as a way to bring some of this footage into the story um, by showing footage as though she had filmed it at the time. And we incorporated some of the other characters, you know, who were in the movie and sort of put them into some of that footage that we shot in black and white to integrate it all into one singular style.
2: Where did you learn to use a camera? My family owned a photo studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grew up in it.
1: why do you leave Oklahoma?
2: Um, about six and a half years ago, the police and all the deputies, they burnt down my whole neighborhood. They said a black boy attacked a white girl. Oh my God.
1: Can't the government do something?
2: Great war flew overhead, dropping fire bombs.
3: What do you mean?
2: It was the government, that's More than a thousand of our homes destroyed.
3: Why
1: is there so much wrong in the world that no one knows about? Mm -hmm.
2: It's easier to believe stories. They make us feel safe. Atta's experience with the Tulsa race Massacre, and her role as a chronicler, the way she captures other examples of social injustice at the time, felt very contemporary. It almost had the feeling of how people were using cell phones in earlier months of this year during protests
0: yes she was she was an early documenter of all of these events and of course there were people filming that archival footage at the time so when you see these signs that are bannering and protesting police brutality and you know all these other issues that we still protest about today
2: it makes it quite interesting yeah it really feels so contemporary The girls refer to King Tut and the Pyramid several times throughout the film. Joe dreams of becoming an Egyptologist, and earlier in that decade, earlier in the time of this story, in November of 1922, Tut's tomb was discovered. Would you explain the connection the film makes between King Tut and exposing the truth about radium?
0: Sure. It really stems from this, you know, idea of world building. So the things, things that had led up, you know, to the world that the radium girls existed in. I mean, Tulsa massacre happened six years before the radium girls, but, you know, Sacco and Vanzetti had been happening across the river and downtown in the Stock Exchange in New York. And, Also, several years before, King Tut's tomb had been exhumed in Egypt, and there was a real fascination with Egyptology, and that was something that made perfect sense, that our girls would be obsessed with as well. And you have these ideas of death and a goddess of truth. And I love the line in the film at the end when Joe is saying to Bessie, I mean, did you know that... The book of the dead is also called the book of coming forth into light and i think that we wanted to give this sense of history and ancestry and transcendence as we all move through our own lives i mean we're all only here for a short time but there was such an incredible poetry to you know many translations of the book of the dead the one that we used is by a writer normandy ellis and we some of the poetry appears at, toward the end of the movie but it gives you a sense of elevation because these were these were girls and these were women who really stood up and used their voices and really took on things that were bigger than them and it felt like you know we wanted we wanted to honor that we wanted to honor the fact that what they did was something that was accomplished with the support of many other women of the of the of the era, because women had just gotten the right to vote not that long before the Radium Girls case arose, and women wanted to use that vote. They there was a dire need of legislation in the realm of industrialization. It was the Wild West. There were no child labor laws, there was no toxic toxic chemical laws, and these were things that women were really spearheading. And so you know, it made a lot of sense, actually, when we when we dug deeper, that these women took on the case of the radium girls in a way that really elevated them to a national level. In some ways, it may be the reason that we actually are talking about it right now, even though we feel like it's been buried for a lot of years. At the time, it was, it was considered a very notorious case. And it's very well documented because of that. Yes.
2: Um, and because of that, the fact that it was notorious and had a tremendous impact. I was hoping you could talk about how the fight against American radium led to a lasting impact on workplace health and safety regulations. What are some of the precautions and policies we have today thanks to these heroic women?
0: Well, there have been a lot of worker safety regulations that have put, been put in place and a lot of toxic chemical regulations that have been in place. I mean, unfortunately, a number of them have been rolled back over the last four years, but hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll bring ourselves back to the level of progress we had achieved soon. But I would say as well that w- one of the things that I don't think people think about, but is really a big part of why their case you know, needs to be remembered and needs to be looked back at is this toxic chemical industry creates a lot of waste. And the waste of the radium factories, it happened in New Jersey, I believe it also in the Athens uh, factory in Georgia, the waste gets used for landfill. And it was used in Montclair, New Jersey for in concrete for sidewalks and housing foundations. And that's why the EPA has had to come in and declare these places Superfund sites for contamination cleanup. And there was groundwater that was contaminated. It was, I mean, it wasn't just the idea that these girls were dying, but this contamination was going out into our lives in ways that we actually didn't even understand until the 70s and 80s.
2: This film seems remarkably timely. After I viewed it, I thought the importance of activism. Do you think that there is a particular resonance at this moment in 2020 watching the radium girls.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when we made the movie, we were thinking about events like, you know, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, or the way people talk about what happens when you hold a cell phone up to your brain, you know, for hours on end. But I would say in the COVID crisis, there's so many parallels. It's it's really haunting. You know, you think of COVID and radium as Elements and things that we don't know everything about or they didn't know everything about radium at the time we're learning still learning about COVID. You think about the idea that that science is being denied and that governments are turning. Away from the idea of people suffering and falling sick and dying asking the question is it safe to go back to work economies are being you know collapsed and. All of those issues are really, you know, turning into something that requires, it really requires a major collective force to stand up to. So I think, I think the radium girls were really whistleblowers of their time and the women around them supported them. And I think we've, you know, we're undergoing something in our country right now where we've seen the power of, of collective voice and we can see what more we can do
2: filmmaker and director Lydia Dean Pilcher. Radium Girls is streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's an excellent film, especially meaningful during Women's History Month. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture, and City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
3: The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.